The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today, we're exploring the themes of post-truth and tribalism. There may be no universal truth, but there is always an important struggle in any particular historical time or discourse about trying to establish on the best evidence and the best discourse what is true, because it's on that basis that we make our laws, we build our conventions, we think of our rules, we think of our norms. To help us navigate our post-truth world, we're joined by Homi Baba, Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University, philosopher and novelist Rebecca Goldstein, and philosopher Hilary Lawson. And that, I think, is what the post-truth era is all about, that our own political identities have become so prominent that propositions that truly have truth values is irrelevant. So what is post-truth? How does it feed into modern-day tribalism? And is it possible to outline a framework for establishing the truth? We become ever more aware of the perspectival character of our knowledge. And with that, the idea that then we might find some ultimate uh, position which could see how things ultimately were seems to be ever more implausible. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at IAI underscore TV, leave a review on iTunes, and head over to our website, IAI.tv, to hear more from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Back now to Rana Mitta, our host for this week's talk. Homi Baba, could I turn to you? Do we still need an objective truth, in your opinion? Well, this morning I said that the first capital T of tribalism was exaggerated and problematic. And now I'm going to say that the capital T of truth is possibly not the best way of looking at this problem. I mean, there are many very interesting theories of truth, correspondence theory, discursive theory, mimetic theory. So it seems to me that there are many theories that theories of truth, all of which respect some note, uh, which respect a notion that is against some, uh, against some entirely uh, jejeune pluralism or relativism. But today, when we talk about the post-truth world, I feel we are not actually talking really about post-truth. We are talking about alternative truths, as indeed you hear them now in public political discourse. When Uh, Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, said famously on television, truth, what is truth? 
Or indeed, when in the recent film, Eichmann is scripted as having said, what is truth? Believe me, these are not metaphysical, deep metaphysical discussions. They are precisely parts of a war, a political war, to establish a certain kind of vocabulary which speaks to a particular political issue. And therefore, I think, alternative truths gives you a sense that there is now actually a struggle amongst various amongst ideologies and people want to impose a particular view. So, and it doesn't, it doesn't end with Giuliani and Trump. In the Indian textbooks today, when they want to get rid of evolution, the theory of evolution, when they want to suggest that, uh, cancer, uh, that, that cancer remedies and cancer technologies were all known to the Vedas, that, and these are in school textbooks now, I think that is a fight, a struggle over truth. And this reminds me of a statement that Foucault once made, that there may be no universal truth, but there is always an important struggle in any particular historical time or discourse about trying to establish on the best evidence and the best discourse what is true, because it's on that basis that we make our laws, we build our conventions, we think of our rules, we think of our norms. So I think that one has to contest various truths because the, because the relationship between reality and truth often changes. Death in Venice doesn't mean the same thing as death on the Ganges. It's a very different cultural, social, metaphysical, and religious phenomenon. So my feeling is that we have to think not about consensus around truth, but about conventions and traditions of convergence. And universities and cultural institutions and our pedagogical, our pedagogical views and policies are extraordinarily important because my final thought on this, we've got to establish some interpretational good practice. That's as far as I will put it. When you oppose me, when you fight me to the ground, I must be able to recognize in the version you give of my ideas some fairness. I don't mind if you disagree with it. I don't mind if you exaggerate some parts rather than the other. But some form of the totality of my argument that I can recognize and therefore on a productive platform respond to you must be there. I call it interpretational good practice. I'm trying to think about it and work it out. But that's where, for the moment, I rest my case. Well, that sets up a very, very interesting idea that we'll come back to after our other opening statements. The idea of good practice in that type of debate is clearly going to be very important in understanding whether or not we're actually on the same, in the same framework yeah. and on the same grounds. I point out, I think the first person to uh, ask uh, what, is tr uh, what is truth may have been Pontius Pilate. So whether that is a, uh, a good starting point for this debate is a slightly worrying thought, but we'll get back to that too. But before we do that, let us turn next to uh, Rebecca Goldstein. Rebecca, the question before us is whether there is something that can be called objective truth, and if so, whether we still have a need for it. What are your thoughts? So I have, uh, to me, the, the idea of, of truth, of objective truth, um, is absolutely necessary. I think uh, there's nothing very fancy about it. Um, it. It's true what Homie had said, that we philosophers have often put forth uh, alternative, different 
what are called different theories of truth, the correspondence theory, uh, the coherence theory, uh, pragmatic notions of truth. I don't think that these were actually defining truth. Uh, the good old common garden variety truth is built in uh, to the act of assertion. Uh, just uh, to assert something is to say that it's true. It, it goes back to why language is important in the first place. Uh, we, 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 it's why the, uh, one of the definitions of the correspondence theory, uh, notion of truth, one of the definitions put forth by uh, uh, a philosopher named Tarski is, uh, snow is white, that proposition is true, if and only if snow is white, which is completely boring and uninteresting, and that's because truth is just it's so fundamental. We really can't define it. What we have argued about, and what we have argued about since the beginning of philosophy, since the beginning of, of uh, being rational creatures, is uh, how do we ascertain the truth? So, so it's, it's, it's our knowledge of the truth that has been contested um, and you know they're empiricists they're irrationalists uh, there are you know, those who think emotion is important in determining the truth those who think it's 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 it completely gets in the way um, it's uh, th this is you know epistemology it's 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 knowledge of truth that is the truly a difficult thing um, so truth to me is is, is, is is a very prosaic term and when somebody tells me they don't believe in objective true Truth, I say, um, and am I supposed to believe what you just said? And if, you know, if 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 if, if I am, uh, you've uh, you've just negated yourself. If not, if uh, why should I take what you just said seriously? So it's you know, it's just a self-defeating uh, kind of uh, proposition. I I wonder. We are something interesting is going on right now, um, and so you know, more interesting than all of these fights that we've always had about how do we reach truth? Is faith important? Religion, science, um, all of these. You know, is art a means of, of finding truth? These this is these are old debates that go back you know since since the ancient Greeks really. Uh, but so what? There is something new that's happening now, and as as Homi had said. It's something political that has happened. And the way I, uh, I see it, what has happened, um, it is tied in with the tribalism. It's a very interesting phenomenon. There, there are more things that we do with language than simply making assertions. Uh, and uh, Wittgenstein has said there are many language games we play. And one of the things that we do in uh, language is that we pledge allegiance uh, to some cause. And what has happened recently uh, in, our, in our day is that certain propositions that have truth values and that in some cases the truth value has been determined uh, by scientists, by experts, um, have become banners for one's tribe. And so for example, if I tell you, oh, I don't think that uh, human activity has anything to do with climate change, I'm not talking about climate change, and I'm not really interested in the evidence for it. I am declaring my allegiance to a particular political coalition. And that, I think, is what the post-truth uh, era is all about, that our own political identities have taken uh, it becomes so prominent that propositions that truly have truth values, and some of which experts have told us what, it, what these truth values are, um, 
is irrelevant. Rebecca, thank you very much for, again, a very clearly stated uh, opening proposition there. Let me now turn to um, Hilary Lawson. Hilary, objective truth, surely society cannot do without this absolutely central lodestar to the way that we think and the way that we act. So, um, we live in an increasingly tribal world, don't we? And um, there are many who are fearful of this uh, tribalism, thinking that uh, it means that those who shout loudest and longest are going to win. Uh, and I'm very much in tune with that. It seems to me that a tribal world uh, is genuinely a frightening one, uh, in which those who happen to be on the side of the tribal majority are able to impose what they wish uh, on everyone else and uh, in which we might become increasingly attached to our tribes and fall ever more into fighting each other. So I'm very much on the side of thinking that uh, this tribal world is a worrying one. But I am not in any way tempted to think that I should reach or we should reach for truth as a solution to this problem. And that's because it seems to me that the history of the 20th century has been the history of seeing a retreat from the idea of truth with a capital T, that objective truth, that thing that is somehow independently there and outside of us. And that's because we become increasingly aware of the importance of our perspective. That might be a linguistic perspective, it could be a cultural perspective, it could be a temporal perspective, it could be just that we're human, but we become ever more aware of the perspectival character of our knowledge. And with that, the idea that then we might find some ultimate uh, position which could see how things ultimately were seems to be ever more implausible. In fact, it seems to me the idea of philosophical realism is effectively dead. It's over. There isn't a way back to it. So the question is, what do we do about that? Well, I think one of the first things is to... Uh, see language and our theories about the world, not as descriptions of how the world is, but as tools to be able to intervene in the world. What we do with our theories is to create ways to uh, hold the world, which enable us to intervene successfully. And in the same way as if we have a, um, I don't know, any, any tool, say a mousetrap, and um, there are better and worse mousetraps, but there isn't a true one, is there? And so it seems to me it is with language and our accounts of the world. It's just a mistake to imagine that they might be true. Now, at the moment, socially, I think we're at the situation where we're potentially of having the worst of all worlds. That is, on the one hand, we have increasingly come to accept alternative perspectives and encourage the idea of different perspectives, but we're still somehow attached to this religious, almost religious belief in truth and the real. And just as some people have given up on the idea of God as a human fiction, I think we've got to give up on the notion of the real and true as a human fiction as well. But that doesn't mean to say that we can just let anything go. I think we have to redouble our, our <clears throat> attachment to the rational 
and to observation in order to improve our tools, in order to improve our ways of holding the world. And just a last thought at this stage. For those of you who are feeling just a little disappointed that we might have to give up on this idea of the real and the true, I mean, that is, of course, what um, our, uh, those uh, who, in the medieval period, wanted to hold to a notion of God, and uh, indeed, more recently, they felt they were losing something by giving up this uh, fiction. And in the same way, many of you may feel, well, I, I don't want to give up on the idea of the real. It somehow makes sense of what I'm up to. But I'd like just to re sort of situate that for you. Instead of thinking that you're giving up on the idea that there's something out there which you're never going to get to anyway and people have always disagreed about and you can't get there, think of the world as being open. And what you do and what we do is we close the world with our metaphors. We close it um, to make sense of it. And there's no limit to the number of ways we can close it. There's no limit to the ways in which we can intervene to hopefully make the world a better place. And we can make those tools that we create in order to intervene better by those traditional enlightenment methods of reason and observation. Well, thank you, Hilary. Plenty of reason and observation to come in the next half hour or so. I will very soon move on to the points that both Rebecca and Homie have made, and particularly I, I'm thinking of this idea of a code of good conduct and so forth. But before we get there, I want to spend a little time between us discussing how we got to where we are today. And there's one word which hasn't yet come in, and I think this audience would riot and basically tear us from the stage if we didn't put the word postmodern on the table at this moment. I'm going to take it straight back to Hillary for a moment here and say, you know, ask very explicitly, is there anything to the argument that the reason that we are in this, if we want to call it post-truth environment, because a classic, modern, late capitalist narrative of progress has been successively under attack from a variety of different postmodern approaches which reject that kind of linearity and, and progress. Is that where the centre of it lies? Well, I think that rather than it being the result of postmodernism, I think the retreat from truth you know, probably started at least 100 years earlier. Um, Fraser, when he wrote The Golden Bough, uh, initiated... This is the anthropologist James Fraser. ...initiated an attack on moral truth and religious truth, which uh, has echoed through the 21st century and gathered momentum with stories of uh, anthropologists of Trobrian Islanders and the like. And uh, so the, the momentum away from a notion of objective truth began a lot earlier. And postmodernism was indeed the end point of that shift, a sort of uh, a radical attack on, on the idea of objective truth. But I don't think it was responsible. It's, that's why I don't think we can just get back. There is no way back. We, we've had a hundred more years of moving away from this. There is no way back. Uh, Rebecca, is postmodernism in any way relevant to the post-truth debate? Is the attack on a sort of linear idea of progress part of what then breaks up the discourse? Yeah, so, um, well, yes, I think to some extent, uh, but it's, uh, it was um, the postmodernists, I don't think were so widely read. Uh, they're very difficult to read, aren't they? It's just clotted with jargon. And, uh, and uh, I, I often wonder whether they know what they're talking about. <laughs> 
Um, Would you like to name any names here, oh, Rebecca? Oh, no. This is, be- this is being videoed, by the way. <laughs> no. Um, and, and, and yes. And then, of course, all my friends who identify as postmodern are exceptions to what I've just said. Um, you, you ought to have told me it was being videoed before. <laughs> I don't make a rules. Uh-huh. But... Um, so I, I, I don't know that that really has had... The, the place that I think, uh, the, the movement that I think really had um, an effect were the so-called science wars um, of several decades back, uh, uh, started very much uh, by, by uh, Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. It was a widely influential book. Um, I'm told it's still the most widely uh, assigned book, at least in American colleges. Um, and this uh, was a, uh, an interpretation of uh, science, which I, uh, actually my, my uh, specialty is philosophy of science, that's what I had begun in. Um, it's something I completely disagree with. I, I am a scientific realist, uh, as, as most scientists are. I think they're in laws of nature and we don't know them absolutely. That's what the whole scientific methodology is about. We keep falsifying, but we're getting closer and closer. Uh, and certain things that we do know, for example, that carbon emissions cause uh, global warming. Um, peril, it's perilous to doubt that. Um, and, uh, but this uh, view of Kuhn, that it's all a paradigm shift, it's akin to a religious conversion, it's a power play. Uh, this, the experts, the people who are the most powerful, who get declared, uh, to be the experts, they're the one who remanufacture the truth. They change the rules of the game. Um, this this interpretation and paradigm shift just became one of the most uh, overused memes. It's a meme. Yeah, it's, I've seen it on subway advertisements. You know, change your shoes, change uh, change your paradigm. I think all sorts of. Uh, so I think that this had a very, uh, to my mind, deleterious effect. Uh, and prepared the way uh, for thinking, you know, there is no truth, and also for, uh, for mistrusting experts, because for some truths, not all truths, but for some truths, we need experts. Uh, we, need, we need people who have d- devoted their entire life to being trained for this sort of thing. Can I just, just comment on this? The, I don't think uh, Kuhn was the person who kicked this off. Heisenberg, who was a reasonably important scientist, was he not, in the history of... 20th century science, the founder of what we now think of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, um, made not only the claim that um, uh, you didn't require, uh, uh, that wasn't objective truth, he went as far as to say science didn't need objective truth in order to be able to formulate its framework. That was long before Kuhn, and and I think think the idea... Sorry. Was that that before he joined the Nazis, uh, Hillary? Is that a rational argument? Or a, well, it's a, an no, argument that I, he may uh, have been somewhat interested in blurring uh, uh, some you, of the you boundaries. You wanted to challenge quantum mechanics as, as outlined by Heisenberg as a result? No, but or I'm are, question, you, are you just I'd engaging like, in I'd a like rhetorical question, move like in order to... Uh, Heisenberg's objectivity as someone who maybe has a not entirely untarnished view of I where... No, but that's not... Forgive me for saying that's below the belt. It's completely irrelevant. We can talk about Heisenberg's politics. We can talk about Heisenberg's and besides, it actually wasn't Heisenberg, it was Niels Bohr, a Dane. 
half Jewish, by the way, so not a Nazi. Um, it was the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, and where you know there was a famous debate between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. It was Niel, it was it was Niels Bohr who was who put forth this view, which was by no, the no, way no, the no. reason Heisenberg did it in, in his book about physics and philosophy. He's absolutely physics, clear about his position that science no longer needs to be attached to the notion of objective truth. Can, can we bring Hermie? That's why we this don't want scientists doing philosophy. This is the kind of argument that gives truth a bad name. <laughs> can, can, we, can, can, we bring Hermie, can we bring Hermie in on this yes. uh, question? If you would, on this, this uh, question. Why does, it give, why does it give it a bad name? Well, I mean, the question really is truth for what? What are you talking about? What do you, where do you want to establish the truth? What truths do you want to establish? And I think Rebecca is right as a scientific uh, realist, that there are some kinds of truths that are established, not for all time, but they create what I've been talking about as a convergence, as a good practice, and they are very productive. So there are, on the other hand, I think you're absolutely right, that the search for this unicorn of absolute and total and objective truth doesn't exist. Yes, snow is white, but as we know, this is the cliche that we, were, we, we taught at Sussex, the Eskimos have 32 different ways of talking about white. So the question, that's why I said, death in Venice doesn't mean the same thing as dying on the Ganges, whereas death is the same condition. It's a certain condition of human extinction. The rituals around it, the meaning of it, the age in which you die, what ethical uh, inputs that has, is very different if you're in a different culture. And I think the problem with this discussion, with great respect, is that we will certainly work out the scientific truths of it after, after this session on, with, uh, around a drink. But one of the most important issues around the question of truth are the ethics of interpretation. And, and, and in either case, I think we've got to establish what the importance of interpretation. We talk about the rights of expression and free speech. Most of the major issues we have now most of the major cultural wars we have now, most of the major religious wars, is that we don't know how to tolerate each other's interpretations so in a generous and open way. So That's let's, the let, important So let's issue. get more specific on that. You've mentioned more than once the idea of a code of good conduct, yes. a code of good practice. What in practice, if I may say that, would that mean? What should we be doing now, that, uh, what, which, what should we start doing that we're not doing at the moment? Well. I explained what I, um, I, it's an early thought I've had, I've been trying to work it out, it's a certain kind of idea that I need, my argument needs, I need to recognize my argument and the validity of it. Mm. I don't need to, the truth of it can be contested, but the form of it needs to be understood. And I think we need to think about truth both as form and as content. And I think one of the most important things that we could do now is to integrate this into our pedagogical wit. I think we do not teach philosophy, and we do not teach assertion and counter-assertion, if I might take you, and the fairness of it, and the, and the ritual of it, and why an assertion and a counter-assertion, or an enunciation or expression, and the response you get, that is not simply about decoding meaning or winning an argument. That is about recognizing the dialogic process as a process. You know, I think the importance is we need to build arguments, not win arguments. And the emphasis today is on winning arguments. But I think that's infinite. But you don't dispute that. But, but I, I'd really like to support this. And I think in some ways, from different outlooks, we're trying to say the same thing here. 
I'm wanting to say that we want to employ those very traditional Enlightenment ideas of reason and observation to the accounts that we give, um, to the tool, our linguistic theories and what I would call closures, and to use those to explore our alternative perspectives, but abandoning the idea that one of us is right abandoning the idea that you know somehow if we use these tools we can just uh, say no no that's obviously a mistaken view i recognize for example in terms of the disagreement that we were having before of course it's possible to hold a philosophical realist point of view i happen to think it's misguided and i, I can point to you know authorities who would also think that it's misguided but i i'm not wanting to say that i'm right and yours is wrong, I would say it's a way of holding the world, philosophical realism. I don't think it works very well in all sorts of ways. And we, sh and we should challenge each other on the basis of observation and reason in terms of our competing metaphors, your competing metaphor and my competing metaphor. And so we need to redouble our attachment to reason and empiricism while abandoning the idea of the real. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, Rebecca, is that a viewpoint that you would share? It seems to be trying to reach that shared ground of agreement that Homie's been bringing up as well, right. while sticking um, very strongly to the viewpoint about objective reality that Hillary wants to put forward. Yeah. Is that fair? I mean, the claim of um, that there is objective truth is, of course, never the claim that we've reached it, that we have it. It's not, it's not, it, 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 it's never that claiming, mean, quite, the, quite the contrary. And I, I, I think the notion of the real is a, it's a notion of, um, I mean, there, there's a real world out there. there there's stuff, it obeys laws, obeys uh, physical laws. And, uh, and it is our self-interest, you talk, talked about, uh, spoke about the pragmatic uh, motive uh, for for these um, investigations, in our it's in our interest to know uh, the laws of nature. Uh, this is this is something that that that, that it uh, helps us. I'm not saying anything very very fancy here. Uh, you could put it in terms of realism or put it in terms of truth. Um, it's 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 something that we take for granted. Uh, do do vaccines cause autism? Right. This that's all I mean by the real. Right. Is there is there you know, and, and, and yes, and, and that's why it's in our interest to use reason and to use observation so that we can jointly pool our talents, our resources, our uh, knowledge is also very positional, right? Some people are in a position to know about certain things and some people 
are, and some people just by their identity are, are in a position to know certain things. Um, I'm in a position to know what it's like, for example, to be a woman philosopher. Uh, it's not pleasant, uh, and <laughs> to say the least, a very I, combative I field. Always unpleasant, <laughs> Rebecca. No, it's particular, right? It's a mm. combative field. We're not made for that sort of mm. thing. So um, we have these high voices, and it's not, it's not good. Uh, but in any case, uh, so th there is that kind of, uh, you know, perspective. I can speak to that, uh, you know, with, with great authority. But, but, but just to be clear, Rebecca, you're not yeah. saying on that, I mean, whether one's a woman philosopher or, you know, a non-white historian, whatever it might be, that yeah. other viewpoints that don't come from that experience don't have their own validity. Of course not. Of course not. No, I mean, we have to Of course pool. not. I'm glad you do, but yes. some would disagree with yes. that. Yes, we have to pool all of our, our experiences, our talents, our resources. The truth is, my truth is hard to come by, you know. Um, everything that you've said against the truth, am I to believe it? I mean, you were saying those things were true, that this is what we must do. This is, uh, let's, let's do away with truth with a capital T. Um, you're, you're asserting that to be true, right? Uh, and uh, now, Herbie wants to go, yeah, go, go, go I just want to make a distinction, I think, which we need to have if we're going to get anywhere here, between making an assertion, which I completely agree with you, yeah. and actually uh, uh, attaching that assertion to some objective notion of truth. And I'm very glad that what you've just said, which is very much at the heart of something that's very important to my thinking, which is the failed messianism in the Jewish tradition, that you try, you patch up, you try to achieve, but you never achieve it. Now, once you say you don't achieve it, I would suggest, Rebecca, then the objective truth issue becomes a weaker one. You can assert it, but it becomes weak, right? I totally agree. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, Hillary, I, as you know, I mean, I'm never usually the middleman in anything, but uh, here, <laughs> but there are certain pleasures in, in this role, you know, I'm usually flung at one end or the other, but I mean, I'm, to sound sane is for me something of a privilege. Uh, to sound sane and in the middle. Let me just- You're enjoying your new centrist position. this new position. <laughs> Between the scientific realist and the anti-philosophical realist, it's a great place to be. But let me just say that, just philosophically, if you believe in a capital T, if you believe in a capital T truth, right? or you believe in complete openness, and I see exactly what you're saying, that actually you close in, you construct something around it. I think I'd like to get rid both of the capital T truth and the idea that there is an infinite openness which are, which are constructs, whether they're philosophical or whether they're rational, can somehow you know, create a, 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 a something within them. I would like to get rid of both those ideas, and but add something to the conversation, which is we've talked a lot about rationalism and rationality in discussion, in argument, and I think we've agreed here that discussion and argument, assertion, counter-assertion, are ethical ways of recognizing the place of another, not only another idea, but another person, another school of thought. In that case, then, what about affect? We talk so much about the logic of reason. What about the logic of affect? The feeling in the discourse itself of shame or guilt or inferiority or lack of confidence or fear or anxiety. I think much of the post-truth moment now 
deals largely in affect in a very, yes, sorry. And doesn't also, directly responding to that, Homie, doesn't also the current moment and the technological moment rob discussion of affect? Because one of the things that shapes the post-truth world in the way that it's emerged in the last five to ten years is that it's mediated through social media, through great distance. Affect is the first thing that's lost quite often. Rana, I would, I would not go that, that with you. I think what is lost are certain protocols of interpretation. Sorry to go back to interpretational good practice. Because in the marketplace of issues, there can be a lot of affect on the internet. People write about all kinds of things. They expose themselves in ways which then they feel that their privacy is being robbed. You know, there's this whole paradoxical issue. People say, so I think what we need is some form of enlightened regulation of interpretation what can be said what some of it might be regulated from the outside some of it might have to be our internal regulation of how we use this new medium and it is a new medium so i think affect is not lost but affect is not worked with if there is you know people just shoot off in twitter i mean look at um, uh, you know look at uh, uh, old trump I mean, that guy, I mean, he really needs a, several analytic sessions for several years because he just thinks that by throwing something out, he's actually achieving something. But of course, because of the fact that, as it happens, I believe he's currently president of the United States, when he puts out one Absolutely. of those tweets, then that has an effect. Of course. It does have a real world um, And it has effect. a real world affect. People get crazy. You're absolutely right. And, I think what you said is, is, is absolutely important, is extremely important. Um, and to me, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why I, uh, um, I ruined my philosophical career by, by, by writing novels. I think that affect is extremely important. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that one, to me, the, the notion um, that's become more and more central to my thinking um, is how much what it is to be human is we want to matter. We want we, we want to matter in this world, and you know we do it by the arguments we make. We do it by the positions we make, and that's part of the effective uh, affective uh, content of these arguments, you know, that, that people are asserting not only, you know, the way I use assertion, asserting truth, they're asserting their own mattering. And that has to be paid a great deal of attention to. Trump is doing it over and over again. He wants us to be thinking about him 24-7, right? He keeps dominating, colonizing our minds because he needs to feel like he matters. The people who voted for him feel like they want to matter, They're, they somehow feel the loss of their mattering. This is such an important aspect of what's going on right now in the post-truth area. And you know, Rebecca, what yeah. is so interesting there is in order to, to, to capture that notion of affect, yeah. you, you had changed your form from straight philosophical writing yes. to fictional writing. Yes. That's why I think that Truth is not so much only a matter of content, but it's the forms through which we express it, teach it, and read it. Although, of course, I'm going to say I just like us to give up on the religious notion. So, don't we all know that a good conversation is not whereby we're trading uh, points of view and somehow trying to batter the other side into 
recognizing the falsity of their position and the correctness of our own. And my apologies if I might have appeared to be in that mode earlier on. Now you see but this. Now, now um, but the, what is good in a conversation yeah. is when we share each other's metaphors. We explore your space yeah. and we explore my space. And that sharing and exploring of it is one which doesn't assume that there is an answer, yes. a truth. It's just trying out what does the, what does the, you wear the clothes of this metaphor, how does it work, how does it bite, and so forth. Yes. So and I, I, I think that if we therefore give up on truth in that sense, we somehow get ourselves into a better space to be able to share so long as we've really properly given it up. So I think we've, in the last few minutes, heard a variety of things which edge towards what I'd call the prescriptive. Um, let's go back to Rebecca. Rebecca, would you be able to give us a prescription in terms of something we ought to think about doing that in this moment we're currently not doing? Um, well, well, obviously we have to be talking to people who disagree with us. Uh, we, you know, the, the conversation has to be widened. Um, one of the things that I find so wonderful just in the course of my lifetime is how the discussion, um, uh, different perspectives have been taken in uh, into account. Um, to me, this, uh, the importance of dealing with people who have very different perspectives doesn't speak to truth or any, anything of that sort, but it, it speaks to the hidden assumptions that w a person has if they're only speaking to people of their own kind. I mean, it's quite amazing what's happened in philosophy uh, since I started out, be just because women and people of color have finally been uh, allowed into the discussion. And so all sorts of assumptions that were absolutely invisible uh, to those who sort of took for granted their entitlement to truth and all sorts of things of this sort, um, uh, to their own opinions, uh, were challenged and, and challenged as to assumptions that were so deep hidden down uh, that they didn't even know that they were there. Certain questions that have become philosophical, put on the, on the seminar table, uh, weren't there before just because uh, women weren't there, people of color weren't there. Uh, it, it wasn't obvious that these were deep philosophical questions. Um, so my, you know, I, I think just widening uh, the discussion, widening the number of perspectives that are brought in, uh, is, uh, is it, and, and challenging, you know, to me, I'm a more challenging, this is the way I've been, uh, more than understanding, but challenging, I think, is, is very good. You've challenged me, um, and uh, maybe forced me to refine my point of view. I'm, I'm very grateful when people challenge uh, my point of view. I don't, I don't, feel that it's, uh, uh, they're against me, but, and, but that too, you know, that we have to recognize that there are egos, there are people attached uh, to, to assertions, um, and it's not just this disembodied argument, it's a whole person, um, and we have to be respectful and, 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 and make them not ashamed, uh, not feel small. So, so that sounds like a perfect segue into the codification of the way that we carry on discourse. I mean, it sounds like this is sort of the next book in preparation. Are you planning to actually lay down prescriptions about how we take this discourse forward? Um, no, I mean, but it, 
it's related uh, to this uh, because uh, you know, I, as I said, I think that this concept of of mattering and how much everybody wants to matter, uh, and you know, all of us, you know, uh, people who were seen as not mattering before, yes, they want to matter. It's it's, it's such a human thing, uh, and that uh, our, our search for truth, our science, art, religion, philosophy. Mm. Uh, all of these are, are ways of trying to assert our mattering, and this is this is something that, in the search for truth, ought to be taken very, very seriously. Uh, sometimes a person's mattering is more important than the truth. That's, I think, a truth. Okay, that is a, a very clear statement, and one that I suspect will provoke much thought from audience in just a moment. But Homie, did you want to come up? Well, like you, um, I I bristle when people say with respect before disagreeing. Uh, you know, I just think it means very little. It's a little filler. Um, I feel that I have now witnessed a miracle on the road to Jerusalem here. You know, suddenly what I talked about in terms of convergence, good interpretational practice, as you very well, I think this is, it's actually happened in this conversation, Rana. We owe you a great deal. Many of the proposals I made at the beginning, I see, I think, seem to have come here after I ra rather rudely said, this is exactly the kind of conversation does, doesn't allow us to get to the truth earlier on, that inter in intervention. So I think my, uh, my colleagues have been uh, quite wonderful here. I would suggest that something we really need to think about going back to what you said about other assumptions being part of our judgments, is the fact that interpretations and their relation to the language of reality need to be very, very carefully understood and interpreted. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about interpretation. After all, the whole Salman Rushdie issue, if you want to put it like that, disrespect, whatever, was, on the, was caused by people not being able in an open and fair way to think about different strategies and protocols, methods of interpretation. I think interpreting the process of getting to the truth is exactly what creates the community of different voices and different views. So I think we've got to assert the process here. I also think people need to listen more carefully. Here, I think the, the internet has made a problem. People immediately assert themselves in whatever way they want. They don't listen. So I think this dialogical discourse, back and forth, back and forth, is extremely important in conditions where we've got to establish value pluralism. I think the, just the process of back and forth is important. That's the, you know, the, the in progress is as important as anything else. And looking carefully. And looking carefully, as I said, discourse, discussion, dispute is an ethical mode of assertion and counter-assertion. If we don't look at the texts, if we don't look at the statement, and look at the person of the other, the person of the person we are talking to, I think we miss a great deal. And I think, therefore, the most important thing in the humanities and in the humane from a humane perspective around the truth is to really consider process, interpretation, and the ethics of exchange. So peace seems to be breaking out, I think, Hillary. Are you going to join the chorus of uh, a constructive discourse on this? Well, it'd be difficult not to in the current circumstances. But uh, <laughs> I, 
You can try. I, I will at least try and put a little bit of barb into this, which is that um, the reason why I posed this in the way that I did at the beginning um, was because the idea that we should listen to each other's perspectives and uh, outlooks is all fine and good. Um, the trouble is, how do we actually get that to bite? How do we get people to listen to each yeah. other? And, and what is our strategy for getting that listening? And m I offered at, at the outset two possible strategies, one of which is give up the idea that there's a single real and a single truth, which locks people into their framework and think they've got it right. Uh, that, that first thing. And the second is to go back to those rather conservative, boring, enlightenment strategies of holding people to a rational account and asking them to look at the world. Does this way of holding the world which you're offering me work? Does it work in this case? Does it work in that case? So that would be my suggestion of a strategy. Give up on the real uh, as a religious notion and listen to the other perspective, but employ the Enlightenment strategies, redoubling in there to really engage well, and force them to account. I think, Hillary, I'm going to respect everyone here by saying one thing that is objectively true, which is that we are running out of time. Could you please give everyone a very big round of applause? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. It was hosted by myself, Catherine Flay, and our guest speakers this week were Homi Baba, Rebecca Goldstein and Hilary Lawson. To hear more discussion on the limits of truth, be sure to listen to our episode Truth, Science and the Universe, which features Peter Atkins, Sophia Rouge and Tim Lewins. Or you can hear David Blunkett discussing civic belonging and tribalism in our episode Tribal Identity and Tribal Conflict. Please do leave a comment and review on whatever platform you listen on. And tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.